Uh, I missed your name. It's Becky. Becky, okay. So yeah, this is Unspoken Secret. I believe it's episode 22, or maybe episode 23, I can't remember. Uh, but I have Kay, is it Terry or Terry? Mm-hmm. Terry to Terry. Terry. And then Becky. Um, so yeah, I, again, I really appreciate you coming. Um, I think I mentioned beforehand to you some of the outline that I had thought of, just each of you sharing your own story, your own insights. Um, with the topic that we'll be discussing. Um, Obviously, you're more than willing to interact with one another (laughs) throughout. Um, And then I'll ask just some follow-up questions and uh, a simple conclusion. Um, Does that sound good to everyone? Do you have any questions, any other Mm -mm. logistics, formalities? Mm -hmm. Do you know who wants to go first? Whoever you want. I'm I'm fine to go first. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Go first. yeah, I'll go first, and I'll kind of um, introduce kind of what yeah what mm-hmm. we're, what why we're wanting to be here today. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, because so you had mentioned um, I can't even remember you. So August is na- International Overdose right. Awareness Month, mm-hmm. and then on August thirty first, um, that's Overdose Awareness Day. So all across the country, people meet in different places to honor those that have been lost and raise awareness and um, and work towards solutions for the problem with the opiate epidemic. Mm-hmm. And in Utah, we meet at the state capitol every year on the 31st. This year, it's a Saturday, and I think next year it's going to be on a Sunday, so I don't know how that's going to change the dynamic, but I suspect yeah. that we will still... Um, if we don't do it on Sunday, we'll commemorate it yeah, one, one side or the way. other. But anyway, so. Because yeah. um, you all have experience with a son, I believe. You all have All a three son. are sons, mm-hmm. yes. All have a son who. Mm-hmm. Um, and two of us, we have lost our sons. Kay has lost her son, but he's still alive. <laughs> you know, we say, we say yeah. you know, that we, in many ways we've lost them a long time before we lost yeah. them. Physically. Mm-hmm. Well, what we tell people is it's going to be hard anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, every day is hard, every day, every minute. So if it's going to be hard anyway, we might as well make it worth something. For you other know, people. Might as well use it mm-hmm. in a way that helps someone else. And through that, I mean, um, I kind of knew Kay before this happened to me, um, but Becky, I met when um, I saw the obituary and having been in that place, I just wanted to go and put my arm around her and let her know that I was willing to talk at whatever point in time. I, I knew at that moment you're, you're so barraged by all the things that take place after a death and you're in such a fog that you don't even know how to form a sentence, let alone reach out to someone. and. And then we, we, she's become one of my dear friends, and so have a large group of other people who I have met through this experience that I would not have ever known. So, you know, everything has a, a happy and a sad. You know, we talk about mm-hmm. the memories are happy, but then they're sad because that's all we have now are memories. And, and when they were alive, okay, we'll talk about in her story, you know, it's not easier when you're in the battlefield and watching them struggle and, and having so little information to help you know what to do for them. Finding 
solutions, helping people feel comfortable talking about it, not being worried about being shamed or, or having a stigma attached to themselves or to their children. Um, in many cases, you know, you're worried that that your neighbors will think less of them or your neighbors will think here a flawed family if they know these things are happening. You know, those are the, the lies we tell ourselves. But in some cases, and I've, I've sadly become aware of people whose own families, people's neighbors, because of their lack of understanding and of the cliches that have been thrown around for so long, um, that they respond in really unkind ways. You know, so having the sisterhood and having people we can talk to who understand the situation and, and where we're coming from is helpful to us. And, um, and we do go looking for others who are in this position to try to offer help and, and support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's actually a word for that, being dialectic or dialectical. Hmm. Where we have a new label, <laughs> girls. <laughs> where well, you're able to see something like as a whole. Everything has good and bad mm-hmm. to it. Um, yeah. There's positive and negative. Very and like much. you said, those happy memories mm-hmm. they still are associated with sad feelings. And so it's called being dialectical okay well being great. able to see all of yeah. <laughs> we're, so, we've got a whole bag of labels that we're <laughs> good at yeah now we've so. got a good one i like that <laughs> yeah um yeah so t- to start with my story briefly um our son when he was 17 years old was invited by a friend after school on a sunny november afternoon to go for a ride on his brand new rhino atv mm-hmm. and they took off in the hills behind his high school Um, There's a golf course there and some foothills. And his friend was really proud of the fact that this was a really safe vehicle. His father had stressed how it has a low center of gravity and it can't roll. So he proceeds to take it down the side of a hill and, and cranks the steering wheel really hard coming down a hill on a gravel hill and it flips over and my son's on the passenger side, and um, at that time, there were no doors on these vehicles either. Mm, yeah, yeah. And his right leg went out and underneath as it rolled over, and it, it, it almost severed his leg between the knee and the, and the ankle. Um, I got a phone call. I was in my office at home working, and it it was a number I didn't recognize, but I answered it, and all I heard my son say was, Mom, I broke my leg. You've got to believe me. And I'm like, okay, where are you? How did it? I mean, it was barely time for him to have been out of school, so I was a little stunned by you're already somewhere that you've broken your leg. So I got directions to where he was. When I got to the accident scene, I was um, mortified to see the vehicle still on its side, him laying in the gravel, his foot was turned completely around backwards, his pant leg was shredded like someone had taken scissors and just cut it into ribbons and it was soaked in blood. I walked over and I lifted the pant leg up a little bit and I just saw bones and blood spurting and I start dialing 911 and the mother of the boy 
by this time had, was there. And she's like, are you calling the police? And I said, well, yeah. I couldn't this believe I couldn't <laughs> believe at that point that no one had. You know, why did you call me? <laughs> and um, there were some underlying issues of reasons why they were afraid. They, they, they had only gotten this thing the night before. They hadn't, hadn't called their insurance company yet. You know, anyway, she, she says to me, she goes, well, I can help you get him in the car. I'm like, are you kidding me? I don't even, you know, I mean, and I, I just, by then the ambulance was already on its way. So fast forward, he, we um, got him to the first hospital. They stabilized him. He'd lost a lot of blood and was in shock. Um, put him on some pain meds and they brought the x-ray into the room. And my husband and I looked at it and we just looked at them and like, what do you do with this? Because it was, you know, it wasn't like a leg that's broken. It was shattered, and and the bones were twisted, and it was, and and he says, well, we're probably going to um, fly him to the U view. We obviously we don't have a trauma center and surgeon that can handle this. And then a few minutes later, someone came in and pulled him out, and he says, well, actually, the orthopedic surgeon that we would have sent him up to is at Utah Valley. They've had a kind of a similar accident earlier in the day, so we're sending you down there. So we got over there and filled out this clipboard full of paperwork, and one of the papers was permission to amputate um, because they couldn't guarantee that they could, could save the leg. So he went into surgery, and he was unconscious when he went in, so there was no discussion with him about what yeah, this but what's gonna happen. And we sat there for six and a half hours waiting for them to come out and not knowing, you know, if and and the the surgeon he says, you know, the first thing we're gonna do is save his life. He says there's such risk for infection because that leg was ripped open, it was full of gravel, it was full of dirt. Um, he says, and then we'll try to save the leg. He says, but I can't make any promises till I can get in there. So it comes out, and um, there was a new experimental mesh material, and they just took all these bone fragments and wrapped it in this mesh around a titanium rod, and they said, you know, that this will heal together. It, I expected it to be put together like a puzzle, mm -hmm. you know, like you take all those broken pieces and fit them back into a nice little column. But, no, there was bone pieces overlapping each other, and there was some places where there were gaps. And he says that eventually fills in, and um, so that started us on a path of surgeries, recovery, physical therapy. They had to leave the wound open so that the muscle could swell. Otherwise, it's what they call compartment syndrome. I learned a whole lot of medical mm. terms. I um, and the muscle can actually die. So they, his leg was open like a, a roast. Every time I'd go to the grocery store now and I see meat in the meat case, that's what his leg looked like. Um, and he missed the whole last half of his senior year of high school. Um, it happened in November and it, it mm -hmm. took, th through all this time, he went through 10 different surgeries. Um, and he was, seen by an orthopedic surgeon. We slowly, as, as the bones started to heal, and they started closing up the wound with these big boot lace looking stitches. 
and just slowly moving it in so they wouldn't have to do skin grafting because his, you know, a lot of his tissue had had been damaged and was gone. Mm, torn off, yeah. After his leg healed and if he wore shorts and you're in a grocery store or something, people would see the scars. It looked more like a shark attack. <laughs> so that was his story. You know, he always liked... He would tell people. Yeah. It, to tell somebody that that was a broken leg, it, it didn't really describe the experience. Yeah. A couple years in, he started getting the use of his leg and um, being able to participate things. He got a, um, a clearance from his doctor to to ski, which was a big deal to him. Wow. They actually took the titanium rod out because if he was going to do those kind of activities, he's, what he didn't want to do was have him break it again and bend a titanium rod. He says, because then we really would have a problem. So, so they felt like it, the bones were strong enough and healed enough that they went back in wow. and took the rod out of his leg. And we thought the worst was over. I mean, we were ecstatic. He still had to have a cane a little bit. And it took a while, um, but then we noticed just a super change in his personality. Um, after his last appointment with the orthopedic surgeon, and um, he said very much in passing, he says, at some point we're going to need to wean him off of these meds. And my husband and my son and I were all in the room. We all looked at each other, okay. So when his last prescription ran out, we just thought, okay, we're, we're done now. So we gave him some extra strength Tylenol and thought that that would be the end of it. And he became um, violently sick and had horrible leg cramps. And, and he had a seizure in front of me one day, which, um, I mean, That's was terrifying. the most... Yeah, most terrifying thing. I'm standing on one side of the counter, and he's on the other, and he drops to the floor. And by the time I can get around there, he's all eyes rolled back in his head. And take him to the emergency room. They go in there with him for a while, and then the doctor comes back out to me, and he says, well, you are aware of what's happening, right? And I, I'm like, um, clue me in, because I, you know, I was expecting, I don't know, he's, has he got a brain tumor? What? What's? And he says, well, he's, he's in acute withdrawal. He says, you can't just stop those kinds of meds. He says, his body is... And I'm like, why wouldn't someone explain that to us? How would we know that? And so then he referred us to a clinic to help um, wean him down, and mm-hmm. which became a process of five years of taking him to a clinic for a medically assisted um, treatment, which in, in the, at the first was methadone, which we didn't know anything about either. We were just so grateful that someone gave us something to do that yeah. we just, okay. And, and then it, during the course, I asked his uh, case manager one day, I said, so how long does this go? You know, I kept thinking two or three months will be done. And she just looks at me and she goes, well, some people do this for the rest of their life. And that was a whole new blow my head off, you know, brain explosion. I'm like, oh, that won't work. We hadn't been able to have a family vacation or do anything because every morning before 6.30, we had to get to this clinic for them to give him his dose. Um, and then, this was all prescribed at this point. Yeah, this was all, yes. Um, and then, w- then we were told, oh, I'm like, 
can how how do people do this for the rest? Well, they 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 start doing smaller doses, and as you progress, you get take homes so that you can get up to five days worth, so that you can you know have some. Anyway, the process was just mystifying, and no one sat us down. By this time, our son was 19, so mm-hmm. he was no longer a minor. So it's really difficult to get information from anybody unless they sign a paper giving them permission to talk mm-hmm. to you and all of that stuff. So, you know, we never knew for sure what communication was happening with our son. We just knew what wasn't com- being communicated to us. And, um, and then he started trying to um, taper off methadone, which is very, very difficult and very slow. Um, and most rehabs won't take you if you've been on that unless you're down to, I mean, he was at 100 and something milligrams and you had to be down to like 20 to be able to, and they'll only drop you down like half of a milligram every other week. I mean, it's very, very slow. So it, it was just this very perplexing experience of having to, it was like a treasure hunt. Okay, where do I go now to get what information and, and who's who's the, the white rabbit that will give me, you know, I mean, it just, there wasn't any cohesive um, stream of information. When he was hurt, I knew exactly what to do, you know? Mm-hmm. I called 911, they came, they took him to the doctor, the doctor did all the stuff. But when we started having problems with the medications, it was almost like, like, well, you're on your own, kind of, and the, the blame game. All of a sudden, I started getting all these these labels. Well, he's got to hit rock bottom. He's got to want it more than you do. You can't be so codependent or, you know, and I'm like, that's not helpful. What what can I do? What should I do? How, how do we get him the help that he needs? Well, he's got to want it. He's got to find it. How did he find it? If I can't find it, how's he going to find it? Who, you know, I mean, it was was very, very mystifying. Um, and then understanding the physiology of addiction, our focus was always on getting him off all the drugs. My husband said, well, let's just take him up to the cabin for a week and, and just get him off all the drugs. Well, that was the easy part. Nobody explained to us that the brain was going to sabotage him, that getting him off the drugs wasn't the addiction. The brain was now what was causing his problem, and he didn't want to be that person either. But when it's like somebody holding your head underwater and you're trying to get air, that over, it, it overrides all reason. It overrides every other thing that's important to you. You'll do anything to anybody to, to make that go away. It's not about getting high or having fun anymore. It's about not being sick. It's about not hurting. It's about not hating yourself. And it's about getting um, an escape from the, the, the hatred you have for what has happened to you and, and feeling so helpless and so hopeless. Um, so um, started on prescription things but then came the time when those were um, no longer available through doctors, expensive, and 
he started finding street drugs. There's always, first of all, every addict ends up doing something illegal. Shoplifting usually is pretty, and eventually they get arrested for something, and eventually they end up having to go to um, APMP um, groups, and those are great breeding grounds of creative ideas for new ways to um, beat um, drug tests, how to get drugs, how to how to find over-the-counter things that you can um, take lots of to to mask your. I mean, it just is. It's like a university and how to yeah get the drugs that you need. Yeah. Oh, and contact information. And contact information. How to cook meth. Yeah. yeah, so you're doing all these things thinking, you know, that you're getting them help and you're finding out. And ultimately, our son went, we did outpatients, we did um, EMDR therapy, we did all kinds of counseling. Um, and finally, we got to the point where he went to an inpatient rehab and our insurance would cover him for 90 days, which was a godsend because most insurances would cover 15 to 30 days. Um and he did so well in rehab after he got off the drugs and started having some clarity, put on some weight. He was 6'4 and weighed 140 pounds when he was at wow. the depths of his, his illness. Um, but he put on weight. He started being involved with activities. He, he, got, he was voted the res pres. So he got to make out the job charts for everybody. And, you know, I started to see the life come back to my son. I started to see the personality back, the person that I remembered and was so hopeful. Um, and then there was some, when they work through the steps, they get to a place where they have to um, self-evaluate and they have to make amends with the people that they've wronged. And that's a really tough period of time for him and all of the other visits that I had gone to he was always excited to see me and and then all of a sudden that week he was he was kind of you know pushing me off and and he says I'm just I'm sorry I'm just not in a good place and um and he was he communicated with me less the last four weeks of his rehab and then when he got out of rehab he went to live with some guys that he'd met in rehab and we had about six weeks of what I thought was really good time when he'd come up and we'd have dinner and he looked good he sounded good and he was excited about things and then there was a day when I got a phone call from him and I knew he'd relapsed and I was I again it was like somebody pulled the world out from under me I had no idea what to do I was out of town I called his dad his dad had him come over and they and and he was able to pull himself together enough that my husband's like, he seems fine to me. And I'm like, I'm telling you, he's not fine. And then we went up and down, up and down, up and down until the middle of November when he um, went to Salt Lake with a couple girls that he, he'd met one of them in rehab, the other girl he'd never met before, and um, overdosed. And they panicked and left him and he wasn't found for 24 hours after he had passed. And it was almost three days that we didn't know where he was. His roommate called me and asked if he had come home because he didn't come home one night. And, you know, he wouldn't answer his phone and, and 
and until a policeman came to our door and told us that he, he had been found in a downtown Salt Lake Hotel, deceased, and expressed their condolences and asked us if we knew who the girls were that he had been with because they had it on surveillance film. Mm-hmm. And that started a whole, I mean, that that ended the ended my life as I knew it, you know, even with all of the things that we'd been to to that point. And, and it's always something that's in the back of your mind that's a fear. I mean, we work, we live in panic all the time because there were four or five other people that had been in his rehab that had overdosed and died. And, but it, I never thought it would happen to my son, you know? I, I just never thought that he would die from an overdose of drugs. And when it happened, it undid me for several months. I mean, I didn't know which way was up. I didn't care about pretty much anything. Um, my family held me together. Um, I had great friends, great na- neighbors, great family support, and they just kind of let me do what I needed to do till I got to a place where finally one day I said, you know, I can either curl up in the fetal position for the rest of my life or I can figure out what I'm going to do now because there's still people that matter to me and there's still people who care about me. And um, one of my friends said, Terry, we didn't just lose him, we lost you too. And I thought, you know, I don't want my grandkids to lose me. I don't want my other kids to feel that way. And the, re, the, the reasoning through of these are circumstances I can't change. I can never bring Dane back. Nothing they do to those girls will ever change what happened. Um, but there's something I can do, and I, I need people to know what happened to us and that if it can happen to me, I feel like it can happen to anybody. Not that we were a perfect family, but we were just a normal American family, living life, doing, you know, raised other kids that are thankfully in, in fairly de- in good places. And, and so it was just bewildering to me. And I um, wrote our son's obituary and I posted it on Facebook just to try and get in touch with people that I didn't know how to get a hold of, kids from school and things. And that opened up a world that I didn't even know existed. And I was contacted by people from pretty much every country in the world and every state in the nation um, who who told me their stories then and, and how brave I was to have shared that our son died from an overdose. and. And um, I got invited to go to Singapore by a lady that um, lived in Singapore that I met, and they were having a, a women's conference in Hong Kong, and I attended that with her. And I met someone at that conference in one of the breakout groups who was presenting on this um, parent group mm-hmm. that I gave you the information to. Yeah. Yeah. And I could hardly stay in my chair when she was talking about it because it was all the things that I'm like, why didn't I know about this? And the, the, and not talking about what we should have done for our son, but what we should have done for ourselves and how we could have kept our lives in control. Because when, when this happens to you, 
you don't see it coming and you don't realize the parallel path that you're on and how it consumes I mean, I didn't know where I started and ended and where my son began and because I was so embroiled and enmeshed in whatever I could think of to try and save his life. You know, you see someone disappearing right in front of you and you don't know what to do about it. And I went up to her afterwards and I just said, I don't know how to get my hands on this, but we are so desperate for this kind of help. There are so many people that I know who need this kind of help. And she gave me the information, and I contacted the, the people who, who started this in, in the Northwest. And th- through a period of time, we, we worked on creating a chapter here and, and have now been doing it for a couple of years. And um, we have people from every walk of life and kids from 14 up to... 42. 42, I think. Um, another family has a 44-year-old. And we had one family who had a brother who was in his 60s that is still battling mm. substance use disorder. Um, changes wasn't de- developed specifically for addiction, but because that's what so many families are struggling with now, a large part of the, our groups have that as, as their problem. But we mm. do have um, families who come with children with suicidal tendencies and runaways and you know, and other things, but the, the, the opiate epidemic, the substance use disorder, and alcohol is pretty prevalent too, um, has, has hit so many families so hard and derailed so many good people. And I think that's the message that all of us try to convey is these aren't throwaway people. These are our future. These are people who should be our leaders. They should be our school teachers, our, our attorneys, our lawyers, our doctors, and we're losing close to 200 a day just from opiate overdoses. That doesn't even take into account the people whose lives are derailed and hijacked who are still trying to live yeah. with it. And the children, the unintended consequences of the children. Her son left children. Her son has children. Thankfully, mine, mine didn't, although I know that you You're treasure grateful. your grandchildren. Um, but I'm glad that my son didn't leave a devastated wife and children to try and figure out what, what to do with, without him. Um, but it's a very real part of our world, and now they're talking about the opiate orphans and how many grandparents are trying to raise children left behind. And so if people think it doesn't happen in their home or if they think it doesn't affect them, they haven't been exposed in, in a way where they understand how it affects them, whether they have someone they love who is dealing with this or not. But pretty much when I talk to anybody, they know someone in a very close circle who is struggling. It's a family member or it's a neighbor or it's a, a friend from school, a client that I was talking with on Monday friend from high school and he's in his mid 50s um, is struggling there was a woman in my son's rehab who um, had been injured in a car accident and prescribed pain meds and then the doctor wasn't prescribing her enough so she started calling the pharmacy and um, writing her own prescriptions and got arrested for prescription fraud so um, and and she held a very um, 
high position in in her community and it was really hard for her the comment I heard her say one night was I'm not one of them but we're what is one of one is them I mean that's the you know the definition of what is one of them it's everybody it's you know and and a lot of times it's people you're interacting with and you just you just don't know so that's what overdose awareness is for is to honor those have been lost that their lives mattered and their lives still matter they're still very much a part of our lives and that we want to see solutions and we want to raise awareness so that other people will and especially people who are in a position to enact change will realize that things need to be done and there have been a lot of positive things happen but there's still so much more that needs to be done so you want me to go next yes (laughs) okay for me it's kind of hard because there's a certain amount of innocence for someone who started drugs through a medical condition my son did not he was always just well I shouldn't say always he was a great kid I never had a lot of trouble with him or anything. But um, when he was 14, he started to smoke marijuana. He got introduced to marijuana through a couple of guys that he knew from church. And, and we didn't know anything about it. We were taking him to a counselor, wondering why he was so angry and so mean and ornery. And he was our oldest, so we assumed it was a teenage thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But his counselor couldn't tell us that he was smoking pot because that was confidential information so we didn't have any clues so we just kept trying to you know make him happy and do fun things and whatever but anyway he started smoking pot and most people don't get addicted to pot but there's 30 percent of those who smoke it that become addicted to pot and I think that's pretty high percentage knowing that high percentage and still allowing it to become legal is, is scary still to me. Very high. Well, and there's yeah. you know th- there's so much debate about it, and there's yeah. so many people that will argue those points. Right. But but we lived it. Yeah. And he was as addicted as anything I've ever seen to to that, and he kept arguing that it wasn't that big of a deal, and everybody did it. And we lived in California at the time, and the school districts there they're terrible now. They were terrible then. Um, and, and anyway, he missed like eighty something days of school during one semester or however there's only like 90 I don't know yeah, but yeah he, he missed a lot of school so. and we we were weren't aware there was we didn't even know we'd get up and go to school and then he never went and anyway he was living a totally different life than we knew and he became addicted to marijuana and but he was still living a fairly normal life you know but anyway the opportunity came my husband got a job transfer to Idaho we thought this is great we'll just get him out of this environment but we moved to Idaho and he he seems to seemed to be able to find the same type of people in Idaho and and uh, pretty soon he found a couple of friends who were brothers and started to spend a lot of time at their home and we we found out in a roundabout sort of way that not only did the parents allow pot smoking at their home but they provided it and so he was over there just having a grand old time smorgasbord yeah yeah, and and just living a life that we we weren't even aware of we sent him away to uh uh anasazi you know survival camp or whatever it's Mm -hmm. called 
survivalist program down in Arizona. We did therapy. We did all kinds of things, but nothing happened. And so over the years, as he went on, it became a big issue. It was it was arguments about it. It was if you're going to live or if you're going to do that, you're not going to live in our home. So he was out of a, our house for a while, and that was fine because these people provided a place for him to live. And, and anyway, we started, we kept thinking if we could just get him to to see that this is wrong and get him to the next thing, then maybe, you know, he'd, he'd get past all this. So he, like Terry said, um, he got involved in, in crimes and different things to where he had court dates. And so we would go over to those people's house with a clean shirt and say, we came to get you, you gotta go to court. Here's your clean shirt, put it on and we'll drive you to court, which we should have just left them. And now I know that. But we kept thinking if we can just get him clean and, and get these charges dropped so he doesn't have these felony charges for the rest of his life, then that will be huge. So we go over there and take him to court with his clean shirt, and he would stand there in court and just whatever. It didn't seem to matter to him, and he didn't keep any of his probation restrictions. He wasn't home at 10 o'clock at night, and his probation officer would come and get him and take him into jail, and this just kept going on and on forever and then he would finally got to where he moved out we couldn't take it anymore but he couldn't get rent a place on his own so we rented a place for him we signed on the line for him to move out because it was easier to have him gone and uh, that was one disaster that was the beginning of one disaster after another of places that he moved to jobs he didn't get jobs he lost we've done a lot of things over the course of the last 25 years that we regret terribly, but at the time we thought it was right. We thought if we can just, if he can just get this job, or if he can just pass this drug test, or whatever, then he'll be on his way. And sometimes he would, and he'd be on his way for two or three weeks or months, and then he'd blow it again and just yeah. lose interest. Well, somewhere along that way, that line, through going to jail and different things, he was introduced to other drugs, and he would do them occasionally from, from what he would tell us but not always, not often enough. It wasn't until we moved to Utah that um, he would, he had some friends who lived up in Salt Lake and he would go visit them two or three times a week. And, and he came home one day and he said, I'm really sick. And I said, why? And he said, I'll be honest with you, I, I tried heroin and I've done it for two or three days and, and I'm not gonna do it anymore so I have to go withdraw from them, mm -hmm. whatever. So he was sick for two or three days, lose another job. Anyway, this has gone on and on. And then he'd move out for six months or nine months or a year. He'd move in with a girlfriend. He'd find a f roommate, he'd, just the same old thing. But wasn't until he met the woman that he's married to now that she introduced him to, um, to uh, pain pills. And mm -hmm. so she, she and him at this time, they lived in in Idaho and they moved into a house together. They did pain pills together. We had no idea. We thought they were doing well at the time and it just got expensive. She had two children and so it Previously. never Yes. And it never occurred to us that this is who she was. That um, people would do those things. Yeah, with kids. Chill, we just yeah. didn't even enter our mind. We were thinking, you know, hooray, he's finally found somebody he's gonna settle down with and life will be good. But anyway, she introduced him to pain pills and they got expensive and they couldn't afford it and it's harder to afford it when you stop showing up to work and you don't have a job and one thing after another. But anyway, it eventually went to heroin because it's cheaper and they could get on the streets and she had contacts because she was from Idaho and 
anyways, so that's just where it started. And, and uh, it just evolved from there. It took us several years before we even realized what was going on. And eventually, I mean, when he was, he started when he was about 35. And he's been fairly honest about things since then. He will tell us, you know, what's wrong and what he's doing. And, and, but he never, he never would stop. But he would say he wanted to, but he just never did. It wasn't until the last, I don't know, three or four years that he's really wanted to stop. But there are no programs out there for somebody who's over 26 years old and not on their parents' insurance anymore. There's no way to find a place that, I mean, I can't call around for him. He's, they're not going to, I'm, they're not going to take a guy who's his 40s and his, his mom's, mom's calling, calling around him. trying to find him, you know, yeah. and he's not in a position to do it himself, even though he wants to get clean. And so it's just been them living in American Fork and, and doing drugs and, and us being aware for a while and then finally them saying no we're doing really good and we're clean and, and us being stupid enough to believe it for a while and then then something else would happen and one of them would get arrested and and, anyway. and what she's talking about are some of the reasons why we were hoping for the Medicaid expansion and because those kinds of programs would would kick in and help someone in his situation yeah, yeah. there there needs to be that's I think our biggest frustration is that there are not programs that are out there for people that are easily accessible for them to find and to to uh, for anyone use. let alone someone yes. in, in someone who's in that condition and looking for some kind of help they're not going to be able to find it it's too hard you have to you have to spend too much money and we've done that we've put them in detox and and rehab and things over time but it's just it's never been enough because you just can't afford it can't but we felt like yeah. um, with two kids in the situation that we've done things for the kids knowing that by paying for football or paying for something else it's allowing them to continue to do drugs but at the same time if we don't do it then the kids have nothing but DCFS steps in but they don't really do anything you know they they were aware but they thought oh well it looks good to us and so they've just been in this mess well they finally moved this was in Utah they moved back to Idaho she was pregnant with a baby and so they told us that she was clean the whole time she was pregnant we assumed that she was because she seemed like she was but apparently uh, when she was in jail and pregnant they started her on suboxone which is the drug they give you so that you don't have the effects of heroin withdrawal and they started her on suboxone and so when she got out of the hospital she continued only she continued buying it on the street so when the baby was born this past April he was born addicted to Suboxone. So he was in the NICU for 30 days. And, um, and he did fine. He's doing fine now. And he's, he's a darling baby. And he's doing great. But because of that, it forced them to be in the court system of Idaho. They have to go through the drug court now because of the baby's addiction, which was, in a roundabout crazy way, a blessing. Yeah. So now they're in the, the drug court. It's just court. awful that it takes those things. And that the baby has to suffer yeah. the consequences and the other children. But anyway, they're in the court system now. They have DCFS supervising them. And so far, they have allowed them to keep their children in their home. And, and uh, he's working, and, and she's taking care of the kids. And supposedly, they're clean. 
they had someone from DCFS come out the other day and test and check out their house, and they passed, and they went to court two days ago, and they said, as for now, they can keep the kids in their home, and they'll keep checking on them. But I don't know. You know, we've been in this place before where they've been clean, and we've it's even lasted several months, and we thought, well, this is it. This is the time they're going to recover, and then they've relapsed, and then we've started all over again. You get to a place where you can't trust at all. At yeah. all. You just don't trust your own judgment. You don't trust anything they tell you. And he's old enough, but here's the problem. When you start doing drugs of any kind, and his was marijuana, and you started at 14, it changes your brain. It just does. It rewires it weird, and every therapist we've ever taken him to has told us the same thing, that when you do a lot of drugs over a long period of time, your brain stops at about the time you started doing the drugs heavily. So if you were to meet my son, you would never believe that he's 42 because he acts like he's 17 to 20. He dresses the same as he did in high school. The high school dress in the early 90s was not a cool look. <laughs> it's not going to win you any jobs. You're not going to get any job offers going, you know, but you can't, you can't talk common sense to him because he's stuck in that period. He's a 17-year-old. He listens to his loud rock music with a baby in the house and trying to sleep, and, and it's like trying to babysit a 17-year-old. And so there's still consequences, even if he stays clean for the rest of his life. There's consequences with our family. All of our other children feel that they suffered the brunt of his addiction because we were so wrapped up in trying to keep him out of court and out of jail and off of drugs that we neglected them to some extent. However, they love their brother to pieces and they've all at different times in their life tried themselves to help him. I think he's lived with each one of his brothers and sisters at one time or another. They've all got him jobs at different places. They've all done things and they love him dearly and would do anything for him, but they're frustrated and anyway, we all are. But my husband has told me for the last five years that I need to prepare myself that he will probably, only my son, husband doesn't use the word probably, he says he will, die before we do because of his health, because of his habits. He always seems to have an abscess or an, an abscess or another tooth that needs to be pulled or he has a, a hernia or he has it because his body's beat up, it's had it. And so he says, you just need to prepare yourself that he will die before you do and you need to be ready. And so he's come up with this crazy idea that he wants to have one huge family gathering because something in our family is gonna change. He doesn't know what it is. We are doing a family vacation next week, all the kids and grandkids so that they can all be together and have one big happy memory. So hopefully, hopefully. See, and I, I think it's important, as, as horrible as it sounds, um, I think it's important to have life insurance on your kids. Yeah. Because if they pass away or when. Um, At least a burial benefit. Yeah, or something. I, I have yeah. read so many stories of parents who can't give their child a proper, a proper burial, burial because of the cost. You yeah. see it on GoFundMe almost every day. Yeah, you know, that's true. Um, I buried my son two years ago, and it was about sixteen thousand yeah. dollars. So his employer, he was like a, cu a couple weeks shy 
of having life insurance. Oh, dear. And they said, we're sorry, but we can't. He, he didn't meet that deadline to get that benefit. Mm. So that is my advice. Well, that's good to advice. To those to have a life insurance policy, not for anything extravagant, but just enough to give them a burial that you feel comfortable with, yeah. that you can and live with. Yep. Yeah. And then when they have children, too, there's, you know, some... Some, some money for them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's it's hard because it's like Terry said, he's alive, but you've lost your son. My husband and I grieve all the time for who he could have been because he is funny. He's got the greatest sense of humor. He loves other people. He would give you the shirt off his back. He's just a great guy. And everybody who knows him loves him. Everybody. But he's not who he could have been. And he hasn't done the things that he could have done. And it breaks my heart. It just, that's the saddest part, is the life that they could have had. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh. Are you ready? <laughs> Am I ready? <laughs> well, I come from, my son um, was in a, he smoked weed in high school. We weren't happy about it, but I didn't think it was life-ending. Um, but I think his real addiction started when um, he was in a motorcycle. He loved riding dirt bikes. Was in a motorcycle accident, broke his collarbone. They prescribed pain meds to him, said you need to have surgery, but you don't have to. He was at a, a job that he felt like you couldn't take time off. And so he said, Mom, people live with this all the time. It's okay. And um, it'll be fine but the pain meds ran out and then I think that's when he got in trouble and um, the first time I heard his wife say somebody accused him of shooting up heroin in the basement in the laundry room at our apartment and I'm like my son would never ever shoot up heroin that that's just not not the kid I know and I says I'm, I'm sure that that's not true and and probably was in a big denial by my myself um, my husband works in law enforcement and so he sees it day in and day out and he tried to protect me um, our other son was in high school in a legal cause and they, a police officer from um, the local police department came and he gave an example of a kid who had stolen um, a comforter at Walmart and, and that because he ran and tried to escape that he got arrested. And it wasn't but a week before that my son was arrested at that Walmart. He tried to get away um, because he didn't have a vehicle. He had rented a Home Depot, 1999 a day truck. And his friend that um, was an addict as well saw the police arrive and takes off in the truck. 
We have no idea where he is, how to contact him. Home Depot called us and said he's going to be charged with grand auto theft if we don't get our truck back. And so we finally found out that he left the truck, dumped it somewhere in Salt Lake, and walked away from it. So my son escaped those charges, but it was hard for my youngest son to go. Yeah, the example that police officer gave was my brother. Um, when he was in jail, that was peaceful times. I slept at yes. night. It was strange that when was you got to a point where the things that you used to be afraid of or you would, you know, try to avoid that you were praying for. Like, yeah. when you know, please just arrest him. Please, please let him. him go to jail. When, you, when he was in jail, my husband and I could sleep at night and relax. Yes. I mean, and when I wouldn't hear from him for a couple of days, I would go, well, he's either dead in a ditch or he's in jail. So I would start Utah County and go all the way up to Davis County to the jail websites and look for my son. And you'd be mortified at seeing his picture, his booking picture, um, because you go, that, that just, how is that my son? The, the kid who was such a groomer and had matching shoelaces with his shirt and would constantly be cleaning his tennis shoes and just his hair was immaculate. He spent more time in the bathroom than most girls do. You know, how how is that my son? But I would sleep at night going, please just keep him. Please keep him. We never bailed him out of jail, ever. And he knew that I said, if you go to jail, you, you belong there. You can call me. I'll talk to you, but I can't bail you out. Um, there was a time he threatened suicide to his girlfriend that if we didn't bail him out, they called me and wanted me to go bail him out. They said he's going to commit suicide. And I said, there's a protocol in jail for that. They'll put him on suicide watch. I said, he's withdrawing and doesn't want to withdraw from jail, in jail. And that's why he wants out, and he will do whatever he can to manipulate Will do or say whatever the situation. Work. Yep. Um, he got very good at manipulation. Mom, I need money for school, or I need money for books or my car insurance. And I finally got wise and said, I will pay them directly, but I will not. This is the point in the story where I insert that the names and the faces change, but the stories. I mean, every one of us have been in that it's same place, similar. and yeah. every addict. Manipulates. Manipulates and, and, and gets so good at understanding what will get them what they want, whether it's, um, I love you, Mom, you're so great. I, I, I don't deserve a great mom like you, too. You're such a... Yeah. You, know, you know, I mean, it yeah. just, whatever yeah. whatever the, the monster inside of them is dictating at that moment. Yeah. And we all get to a place where we understand that... At this moment in time, that being in front of us really isn't our son or our loved one. And we really aren't their mommy anymore. We're just the person that either accommodates what they want or stands in the way of them getting exactly. it. Mm -hmm. And that's how they respond to us. Yeah. Well, his, his brother said, Mom, the only time I hear from him is when he wants money. Mm -hmm. Says he, he's short on gas or something like that. And... Um, he says, I just told him you control my bank account, so there's, I can't give him any money, and then he quit hearing from him. But um, 
You know, I think when you're a parent of an addict, you have fear, you have um, embarrassment, harassment. I had the police show up at my house late one night. My son hadn't lived with me um, since he was 18, and this he was in his 20s. They showed up with their their guns drawn and um, says, you know, we're here to serve a warrant. And I'm like, I'm in my pajamas. I had gone to bed. It was 11 o'clock at night. And I looked at him and just said, well, you're a little late for that. Davis County already arrested them, arrested him so you can find him there. And so they waited and would not back down until they called Davis County Jail to find out that's where he was. They didn't want to believe you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the phone calls we would get from law enforcement detectives saying, we want to talk to your son about a theft or a crime. or And I finally got to the point where I couldn't take it anymore, and I changed my phone number and refused to give it to my son because I need I needed my home to be a safe zone, someplace where I could come and shut down. Um, the We received a phone call one night um, before we changed the number, and I think this was probably the, the straw that broke the camel's back, is um, they, this girl said, my, your son and my boyfriend are going to do something really bad, and I'm really scared. And I'm like, this was in the middle of the night. I said, what are they going to do? I can't tell you that. I'm like, where? You can call me. I said, where are they? I'm just really scared. I'm really scared. I don't know what's going to happen. And, and then that was it. That was the end of the phone call. I couldn't reach my son for several days, and I thought they're going to find him dead somewhere. And uh, that I'm aware of, he overdosed four times, and the fourth time was, was the final. Fatal one. Fatal one that um, we got the call. The infamous call. But I remember Terry showed up at my son's funeral. There needs to be more people who understand because so many don't and they make it hard and maybe unwittingly they make it so hard not only on on the parents but on the brothers and sisters my kids have suffered a thousand humiliating things with neighbors and you know supposedly concern and interest but not really you know of course I guess it's easy for them to find things to talk about when they're arrested in the front yard and handcuffed and laid on the driveway before they haul them away. But oh, that's great. Yeah. We've had a few of those. But it, it's, I, I think if there was anything that I could say, and Terry already said it well, to, to people who aren't enmeshed in the whole thing themselves, is to have compassion for people because. I mean, I thought I was being a good mom, you know. My other kids have all turned out great. And I mean, and he's a great kid, too. I don't mean to make it sound like, oh, I have one bad apple. I have one son who's who's struggling. made some strange choices and struggled through his life. 
but but we're doing the best we can and so many times people people judge or make comments or like we've talked about you know that's not my kid and nobody can be harder on us than we have been on right. ourselves we've already beat ourselves up a hundred times so they don't need to you know everything you thought about you know and and I know I've shared this experience with with several other mothers but your life goes in rewind and you scrutinize every single moment, every single choice, every single decision. You know, like if I could have just stopped the reel at that moment and mm-hmm. edited that out, things would have been better. I sat with, with, with another mother that I went to the funeral when her daughter passed away, and she was sobbing that they hadn't had time to sell their home to be able to afford to send their daughter to her fifth rehab. And in her mind, that was what would have made the difference. And all I could say is, you know, and at this, we could be sitting here having the same conversation, only you wouldn't have a place to live anymore, and your other four children wouldn't have a home. I said, you didn't do this. You do everything, you did everything you knew that was possible to do. These are things that were out of your control. And there are certain things that we have learned um, and I, and I think this is what keeps me going is knowing that there are key things that I could have done differently. I don't beat myself up anymore. I was kind of mad at these people when I found them because this group had, had been in existence for about 20 years and they just kind of kept it to themselves. Um, that would have helped me be healthier and helped me with my relationships with my other children and with my husband and 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 probably would have helped but I can't say it would have made the difference because we have had two other mothers in our group who've been coming who still lost children we understand that you know we can do the best we can but they are going to make the choices they're going to make and we can't we can't shadow them 24 7 even even when we do that they sneak things they do things you know even when I had my son with me at my mother's house one time and I thought I had my eyes on him the whole entire time and when I got home my mom calls me and she goes Terry I have some meds that are missing I hate to tell you this and I'm like mom that can't be possible and she goes well I'm telling you that it is possible and there's only one person that it, that it could have been and I defended him so much because I knew he wouldn't do that to his grandmother there was no way he would do that and yet later on he wrote her an apology letter when he was in rehab and admitted that you know he was able to distract me long enough. He knew where she kept him. I dumped him in his hand, put him in his pocket. You know, a split second is all it took. He learned how to break into our safe. He learned how all these things that were such mysteries to us. Where are things going? I was sure I had some cash in my purse. What I'm, I'm, you know, you, you look at yourself and you think, I'm going crazy. I mm-hmm. am so absent-minded. I, I must, you know, and, and then when it starts clicking and you realize, ah, oh, but how could he get in our safe? You know, that doesn't make any sense. I didn't even know the way to get in the safe. Well, welcome to YouTube and, <laughs> and Google and 
Google the serial number. I've locked myself out of my safe. Oh, here's a whole list of ways that you can bypass that. Or what model is it? Oh, okay, well, the back plate screws off. Do, you know, their brain, they are so resourceful and so brilliant for the things that, that they focus on. You know, we just... I think it's hard for most people to understand what it really is to them. Um, mm-hmm. I said, how is it that the love of your family, your job, your life, your happiness worth getting your next fix? And it, it is. It is. And it's, I mean, addiction is a disease. People don't see it as a disease. And it's not a failure on somebody's moral compass. No. My son didn't want to be a, an addict. Your son didn't. Oh. Your son didn't. Um, and my son wanted help. Um, but when you when you come from a, a lower income family and you don't have health insurance, you know, you can't cover them on your health insurance. I, I remember him at the hospital and calling and saying, Mom, they need $4,000 just to admit me and then it's 10,000 for the month and I'm like I don't have that kind of money just sitting around and I said honey you know should we remortgage the house should we go take out a loan to get him in rehab and one of my friends said to me most people can go through rehab about five or six times before they even get it if they do you know because once their brain's addicted you always have that risk and sometimes the greatest risk is after they've been clean for a good period of time mm-hmm. because all it takes is that one relapse and then they're gone. Yep. So, so to, to bring things back around to somewhat of a positive, um, because there, there are so many heart-wrenching stories. I mean, we, we represent, each one of us has a pedigree chart of, of how many other people that are, have been where we are or who will be where we are. Um, the, the positives as I see them is um, the medical community getting behind educating people, making them aware that these drugs are highly addictive. A lot of doctors were deceived about the dangers of these medicines. Um, it, it warms my heart to walk into a pharmacy and see a big sign up there that says use only as directed talk to your doctor about you know and and ask about alternate pain medications when I pick up my mom's pain medications the the paper has all these warning things on it which was not the case when when we were going through what we went through um, to to hear the Surgeon General call addiction a disease and to start enacting legislation that puts it into a healthcare category instead of um, mental health. Most insurances would only cover 14 days or so when it's under mental health, but if it's under a disease and it's claimed a medical expense, then that changes a lot of a lot of opportunities for people, and um, and just awareness and and watching when something doesn't feel right, you know, trying to get families. We, there were things that didn't, we didn't understand what was happening, but we didn't, when, when the day came 
and I was talking to my husband about the situation and that you know the the emergency room doctor and what he he recommended and and he looked at me with this puzzled look and he says are you saying he's an addict you know it was like this incredulous you're you're saying our son is an addict and I'm like well he's he has an addiction to these meds yes I guess that's what that means but that wasn't in our vocabulary that wasn't in um you know when you when you bring your baby home from the hospital and you you teach him how to walk and talk you don't you don't look forward and say and at some point we probably need to be aware of he went through the dare program you know yeah didn't they all i still have pencils in my drawer that say dare say no to drugs um and the support and 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 being able to talk um and and get response from legislators and from government leaders and the medical community um and um oral surgeons and things i mean the number of stories i've heard about kids who were prescribed opiates with wisdom teeth removal at 14 15 years of age and 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 having addiction become part of their life because of that or they shared pills with friends because they give them 30 day supply and and there's all these pills left over and kids are having candy parties with with the leftover meds and um because my son didn't start drugs because of a medical condition I want to see the drugs stop coming into the country. <laughs> I know, I know, and I'm I'm not a prejudiced person in the least. But that's I brought this report and printed it off about um, that the hugest percent of the drugs that come into our country come from Mexico and the drug cartel there, and then the second is South America, and so I'm not a big political person. I don't care about fighting over right and wrong and borders and all this and that, but they're coming into the country and they're coming in tons at a time and they're coming right up through Utah. It's a huge corridor from San Ysidro up through Utah and across the rest of the country. And they may have drugs and uh, people there testing or looking for drugs and they have dogs and they have everything else, but the people aren't going to cross at the border if they're bringing drugs in. And so I just, I want to see it stopped. We we got so into trying to find out where our son and daughter-in-law were getting their drugs that we followed them. And we've, I've talked to their drug dealers on the phone and I've threatened them and they are all from Mexico and South America. And they have a, so many um, ways of deceiving everybody in the, in the law enforcement. And, and it's just a big, it's a big, I don't know, they have each other's back. Yeah, a network. They have each other's back and they change phones three and four times a day, not once or twice a month. They change phones and they change cars and they meet at different places and and it's just a big network and something needs to be done because it's more prevalent than we even think that it is, especially here in this state because this is like a crossroads. I would just like to see um, more money spent on treatment, there's there's funds for people who get out of prison to help them get into treatment. But what about funds before they go to jail, before they go to prison? I mean, to me, that's what's most important is that you catch it 
um, the change in the laws where they're making these drug charges misdemeanors instead of felonies. And that's good. And that wasn't a good, good change because then people got so many misdemeanors and you got away with so much before right. they were actually held accountable. Right. But and another thing is that they don't give them men, um, meds to detox on when they go to jail. And so they go off cold turkey and, and they're not really um, at a place where they want to do that. So the first thing they do when they get out of jail is go find stuff. And because they've de detoxed for a period of time, they're more apt to overdose. The jails need to be aware of that and they need to to do something. And there have been recent things, and Gil has just announced some some things, and, and law enforcement in general and in different parts of the country are starting to look at it from a treatment standpoint rather than from a punitive standpoint. Right. But it, you know, it's yeah. baby steps and there's a whole lot more that needs to happen. But as we become more vocal and as we're involved in the legislative process and as we tell our stories and stuff, I have seen responses. I have seen, I have seen change start. There, like I said, there's, there's a long... two jails in Utah now that, that give them Suboxone when they come in and, and are active in active addiction. They will give them Suboxone while they're in and, and when they leave. Yeah, they'll take, give them the yeah. 30 days to, and the names of places to go. To go to get to, to, treatment. To, and, and treatment, you know, like, like we talked about earlier, it isn't just the absence of the drugs, but it's, it's actual life skills. It's actual helping someone maintain their, their life without drugs for a long enough period of time that they can sustain it. And, and most... Most medical studies and stuff say that that's about two years of sustained treatment. It isn't living in rehab for two years, but it's it's having inpatient and then a step down process and mentoring and and things. You know, you can't just put somebody in a bubble for ninety days yeah. and remove all the outside influences and completely control their days and do all of that, and then Let open a door and say, okay, now go get a job, go you know, da, 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 and, and have all those things back that they've been protected from while they're there and, and expect them to be successful. You know, and those were things I didn't understand. I thought, you know, you go to rehab, you're fixed. Mm -hmm. yeah. you, you come home all better, you know, and... You know, though, there's, um, when they come out of jail or prison, um, to find employment if you have a felony is hard, mm -hmm. but addiction is something you have to have regular treatment for. It has to be something you engage in almost every day, and for an addict to maintain their sobriety, it's hard to keep a full-time job and right. not have they need to be able to incorporate treatment into employment. They do. You not have to hide the fact that you've got a record or something. You need or to be not able report to. to a probation officer in the middle of a work day. And right. by the way, you don't have a driver's license. Mm -hmm. You know, it. I think it's just so important for them to have some training for life skills, give them a purpose. Um, and that's where I throw out some plugs to people who have, have looked at these things like Fresh Start Ventures that, mm -hmm. that, that they take people from incarceration and Building Beginnings and Addicted We Stand and a lot of other people who who have been 
in those situations and can list all the all the things that were holding them back even though they had now made the commitment to sobriety trying to go out into the world and do the things that normal people do were extremely difficult so now they're creating the avenues for people who are in recovery to to find employment and to help drive them to job sites and help them get to their court dates and help them to do those things to support them in healthy ways and i use the example of the girls that were with my son you know people in recovery can be good influences or they can be bad influences they get together and they they tell their war stories and pretty soon you know they're back using again or they check in on each other and and there's all kinds of um, places and in big cities and all across the country where they're having sober bars now where there's a place to come socialize but they're that they don't have to worry about drugs being there or alcohol being there and you know because that's the other thing you know You've been isolated, you've been doing all these things. Now you want to get out and you want to meet people. And you know how. How do you do that without the socially acceptable drink? Well, and you, you say, get out in society and, and go hang around good friends. Well, typically, good friends don't want to hang mm-hmm. out with yeah. somebody who is labeled as an addict. Well, and, yeah. and then you add their court fees and their fines and their um, ankle monitor fees, they're already in financial ruins anyways. And you have to and be then drug to tested those, and all yeah, that. Yeah, and you pay for those. And I think they have to have accountability, but also why kick somebody when they're down? They have to have a way back, you yeah. know. You have to have a way back. For me, I would have to say I am past being ashamed or embarrassed and when people see a picture of my son, I say, that's my son. He passed away from an overdose. And then they go, he did. And they get get to talking. And I want people to stop feeling like this has to be a closet thing or we shouldn't talk about it. And Because if we do, we don't want people placing judgment or blame because we, we beat ourselves up over and over again. And so does the addict. And so allowing people to talk and feel like it's a safe environment to discuss addiction, I think is so key. If somebody's, you know, in a place like where we were with our kids and stuff, just to know, just to have someone that they can reach out to who can point them in a direction or just even listen, you know, they don't even know where to start a conversation or who to talk with, and that's... You know, that's that's what we try to do with changes is, is give support and um, outside of the group. Many of the groups, you feel support while you're there, but you don't interact outside of the group. And we yeah. we give each other our phone numbers and we, we send messages. And um, I would rather over over contact and have somebody say, yeah, okay, Terry's good enough, or <laughs> then to have someone feel like they're alone. Yeah, they're alone or they're overlooked or um, it's it's a really lonely, hard place to be. Either, you know, losing them is awful, but it's I it I don't think it's harder to to have them dead than it was when they were alive. I agree. You know, I mean it was it was awful to experience. That's the hard part for me is I, like you, I'm not embarrassed or ashamed of the fact that my son has been addicted. 
but it's hard for me to say things because he's still here. Hopefully he will be for a long time. But I don't want to say my son who is addicted to drugs and then have them meet him someday, and that's how they identify right. him. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want them to have yeah. that. I want him to have another right. identity rather than, oh, this is our son who's addicted to drugs. But, but, but in that same light, if he were struggling with cancer or if he was struggling with any other thing, you or your friend would have any problem with that. And that's, I think, what we're all trying to do is to remove the stigma to the point where people don't see addiction in that. Right, but it's my son who doesn't want that identity. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, it's me, me and my neighbors. We can get through and that, but do he doesn't want to be his... identified as that. Yeah. He wants to be known as a good dad, or you know. But yeah. I think in the law enforcement and healthcare professions, um, because they see so much of it, you have to kind. They kind of become hardened to it. Do you remember that living room conversations? <laughs> and yeah. and I think that I always say. Um, I, I said it to several people I work with in, um, in our emergency department. I said, you know, you may get frustrated and tired of these addicts coming in that overdose. I said, but guess what? They're somebody's child, and one day it could be yours. Yeah. And I said, so remember as you look at them, don't look at them as an addict or a junkie. You look at them as somebody loves them, yeah. and they're somebody's child, and they matter. No matter how many times you you save them, you're giving them an extra chance to, mm-hmm. to live life. And that's one thing I, I, I'm so glad that Narcan is getting out there. Mm-hmm. Um, we all carry it. Yeah. We have it in my purse everywhere I go. But it's the, the um, overdose reversing drug, naloxone mm-hmm. or Narcan, known by those. Um, and um, just this past year, statistics show that it saved three, there were 3,000 overdose reversals because of naloxone. And I think that's another one of the big wins we've had in Mm -hmm. Utah is all of our first responders are now carrying it and have it available. And um, I did a naloxone training at the hotel where my son passed away to help the the people there to understand that you know, this is something that, that you can do. Well, and if I ever hear of people that are using opi- opioids, even if it is, you know, they just had surgery or something, uh-huh. I say, it's important that you, you have, have a Narcan kit. I have one at my mother's. And people ask me, well, why do you carry a Narcan kit? Your, your son passed away. You know, your, your problem is gone. And I said, no, no, because if I have an opportunity to save somebody else's child, I'm going to do it. Yeah. So. Yeah, our problems aren't gone. No. <laughs> you know, we still live in the world, and we still have people we care about. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I don't feel that it does my son's memory any honor or uh, that I would be a good person to just say, well, it's not my problem anymore. It's everybody's problem. <laughs> It's not easy, but but it's worth it.